You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Genesis chapter 17. We're going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall, your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse eight, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, verse nine, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 15, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and and I will make him into a great nation. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. 
And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This, beloved, is God's holy word. You may be seated. Quite a chapter. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and as we have just read, we come to chapter 17 in this great narrative of Scripture. Thirteen years, thirteen years has passed since Sarah and Abraham's remarkable failure last chapter. For us, it's a chapter, it's a week from chapter 16 to 17. But in this narrative, 13 years has passed since their remarkable failure last chapter. You'll remember the impatience, Sarah and and Abraham's impatience with God, with his seemingly impossible promise to provide an offspring through the womb of Sarai. That impatience grew into sinful distrust of God himself. And that sinful distrust of God himself led to compromise. That compromise led to contempt and jealousy. And finally, all of this culminated in the abuse of Hagar, their Egyptian servant. And Hagar was sent running as a result of the harsh treatment from Sarai. Among other things, last chapter, we learned that sin does not happen in a vacuum. That is, sin doesn't just happen in in an isolated incident, but it affects our relationship with God and it affects the relationships around us. It metastasizes, sin does, and it begins to affect relationships. And that impatience led to compromise, that compromise led to contempt, that contempt led to jealousy, jealousy to abuse, and the consequences were far-reaching. We also learned last week, along with the fact that sin doesn't happen in a vacuum, we also learned that we serve a God who sees and a God who hears and a God who pursues both sinners and sufferers. We saw a God who is merciful and kind to those who are afflicted and sent out. But now, 13 years has passed between chapters 16 and and 17. 23 years has passed since that initial cutting of the covenant in chapter 15. 23 years has passed since that remarkable moment when God himself passes through the pieces of the dead animals saying to Abraham and all of us who would listen in that God is staking his life on his ability to fulfill his promises to Abraham and his offspring. 23 years has passed since that covenant. And now Abram is 99 years old and Sarai is 90. 
And it's here in chapter 17 where God gives us the famous sign of his covenant between he and Abram. As another writes, this is a watershed moment. You know, if you heard that term, this is a watershed moment. This is a turning point in the story. So if you're just joining us, this is going, we're going to talk about circumcision and foreskin, and there's going to be a lot of things that we don't typically talk about often throughout the week, but I'm glad you're here because this is a turning point moment in the story, and it has profound relevance for our lives today as we follow after Christ. This is a watershed moment in the life of Abraham, and as we'll find out shortly, this is a watershed moment for all of redemptive history. But before the sign of the covenant is given, God does something that he loves to do. Before the sign of the covenant, that is circumcision, before that is given, God does something he loves to do, and that is he loves to reveal a new name for himself. And he grants and he gives a new name to Abram and Sarai. So this leads us to our first movement in the text. I've entitled this point in the sermon, New Names. New Names, point one. Look at verses one and two. And Abram was 99 years old. Or when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now make note of that title for God. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. There has been a progression in how God has chosen to reveal himself throughout Genesis. There's been a progression in revelation of who God is, and he does so in part by revealing new names for himself. In the beginning chapters of chapter one, we learned of God who is creator. He is Elohim. Elohim was introduced to us in chapter one of Genesis. But quickly, God began to reveal himself with new names. First, he was Elohim. Then he was Yahweh Elohim. He is the covenant God of Israel. He is the God who is near to his people. He is Yahweh Elohim. And then recently, we heard the title Yahweh Adonai. That is, he is sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign, the one who is king above all, in control of all things. He is Yahweh Adonai. But now here, for the first time in chapter 17, God reveals himself as El Shaddai. El Shaddai, God Almighty, or in your translation, it might say God Most Powerful. This communicates God's omnipotence, his power, his might over all things. This communicates to the reader that there is nothing too hard for El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. And as we were introducing this book, Genesis, some time ago, we had made mention that Moses, who is the author of this book, was writing into a culture in the 12th century BC in which there were many gods. 
This was a polytheistic Egyptian culture where there were many gods. And so one of the reasons that Moses, ordained by the Holy Spirit, writes this account of creation and patriarchal history is to introduce to the world the God who is above all gods, the God who is almighty, the God who is all-powerful, the God who answers to none, El Shaddai. This title for God will be used four more times in Genesis, and it comes here at a critical moment in the narrative. Again, God is saying, there is none like me. I am the God who is most powerful. And then he says to Abraham, walk before me. Imagine the trepidation, the fear of Abraham would have been feeling in that moment in the presence of El Shaddai, of the almighty God. God says, walk before me. And of course, the only way to walk before El Shaddai, almighty God, and be blameless is to fall on your face before him. That's the only way to walk before God is to actually fall on your face before him. And that's exactly what Abraham does in faithful adoration. Abraham in verse three, look at verse three, Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer, verse five, shall your name be called Abram, and here now God is going to grant a new name to his people. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. This is remarkable. God is speaking in the past tense. Your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you. I've already made you the father of nations. In God's mind, this is all done. Abraham, as we'll find out in a moment, still thinks it's laughable that this will happen. But God says, your name is no longer fitting. Abram is not fitting. The name Abram simply means exalted father or father. But the name Abraham... Abraham means the father of a multitude. And before we get into into the details of that, it's just remarkable to me. God Almighty, God loves to give new names to his people, which signifies something so foundational in their lives has changed that their names are no longer appropriate. He does this with Abram and Sarai. He does this with, remember Jacob? He changes his name. No longer shall you be called Jacob. You shall be Israel. He does this to Peter. No longer shall they call you Simon, but you are Peter. He does this to Paul. He used to be Saul. God loves to give new names to his people. As a result of his work in them, Abraham would be a more appropriate, a more fitting name. And God tells us why. Because no longer are you going, you're not going to just be a father. You're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Nations. Abraham's new name would be an emblem of God's miraculous work through him to produce an offspring more numerous than the stars in the heavens. Nations 
shall come from you, Abraham. Look at verse six now. He underscores God does the point again. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now, this is a really important insight that if we just keep reading and we gloss over it, we will miss the significance of it. We know that Father Abraham is the father of Israel. He is the first. He is from Abraham would come the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation. But here, the pronouncement over Abraham's life is that not just a nation, not just Israel will come from you, but nations will come from you. Kings of nations will come from you. And the reason this is so important for us, particularly as 21st century Gentile Christians who like to think that the blessing of God's covenant with Abram rests on us is we have to ask the question, how is that so? For most of us, Abraham's blood does not move through our veins. How is it so that this covenant in chapters 15 and 17 will be applied to us? This declaration from God to Abraham in verse 6 and other places is a multinational, multi-ethnic promise. It is a multinational, multi-ethnic promise. That is to say, descendants of Abraham would not only be those of Jewish blood or Jewish heritage, but instead this promise indicates that the blessing of this covenant, this remarkable unilateral covenant of grace between God and Abraham would extend beyond national Israel into the Gentile nations in which we find ourselves today. When you fast forward to figure out how is this possible, we get the indication that nations are coming through Abraham. But when you start to ask the question, how is this possible? And you fast forward to the New Testament, the new covenant, we learn that through the offspring, this is Paul the apostle. We learn that through the singular offspring of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ, that Gentiles, non-Jews, would be considered Abraham's offspring. Offspring. Let me say that again. That through the singular offspring of Abraham, that is Christ himself, that through him, Gentiles, non-Jews, would be considered in God's eyes as Abraham's offspring. The best commentary on scripture is not John Calvin. It's not the reformers. It's scripture itself. Amen. The best commentary on scripture is scripture. Galatians 3 verses 28 and 29. We've referenced this now in the last couple of weeks. Let me read it to you again. And I just want this. I had a a professor once that would say that, that sort of clunk moment where it just sort of just falls into place. And I, I get it now. I understand what Paul is saying. I hope this is that moment for you. Paul writes to the church in Galatia. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And now listen to this bomb that Paul drops. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, this is not teaching that that somehow or simply that the church replaces Israel. That there was once Israel and now there's the church. That's not what this is teaching. Instead, instead, this is teaching that Jesus Christ is the faithful offspring of Abraham. And if you are united to Christ by faith, then God the Father applies this everlasting covenant to you in Christ. Full stop. So this declaration in verse 6 is really good news that, that Abraham would be the father of nations. This is really good news for us this morning. Your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, Abraham is not the only one who gets a new name in this chapter. Jump over to or jump down to verse 15 in Genesis 17. Look at verses 15 and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall, call, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, verse 16. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Now we'll get Abraham's reaction in just a moment to that declaration. But we need to make note again that our God, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Elohim, our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob breaks cultural norms again. And he pronounces blessing directly on the woman. This is unheard of. This is unprecedented in ancient Near East literature where the deity pronounces blessing on a woman directly. This never happens and it happens in Genesis, not once, but now twice. The first time was with Hagar, an Egyptian servant who was afflicted by someone in power and authority over her. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob comes to her and pronounces blessing upon her. And now here, breaking with cultural norms again, our God blesses Sarah directly. These changes, these changes in their names, excuse me, these changes in their names is emblematic of the indelible mark that God's transforming grace has had upon Abraham and Sarah. They have just been so changed by their encounter with God that their names are no longer fitting. Now, this doesn't mean that Abraham and Sarai from now on are going to be flawless in their obedience to God. Far from it. We, we see more remarkable failure in this narrative. This doesn't mean that the change of name means a perfection in their moral behavior. 
But this renaming does indicate a major turning point in their lives. Their new names would be a constant reminder of God's unrelenting love and pursuit of them. And so that's our first movement, new names, a new name revealed for God and new names given to Abraham and Sarah. And this moves us right into the second point of our sermon, the sign of the covenant. And let your eyes move back up to verse 9 as we listen to God unfold now the sign of the covenant. And Abraham, or rather, and God said to Abraham, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. There's the key. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Let's stop there for just a moment and ask the question, what on earth is going on here? What is going on here? First, first, what we just read is not the ratification of a new covenant. This is not the ratification of a new covenant that is separate from the covenant that God established in chapter 15 of Genesis. This is not a separate covenant. Instead, this directive from God to have every male circumcised is to seal or confirm his existing covenant with Abraham. So then, like the sign of the covenant in the noetic covenant. Remember after the big worldwide flood in Genesis chapter six, that flood water of judgment that God had given over the earth. After that judgment, you remember what appeared in the sky. It was a rainbow and and, and it was a rainbow to be a sign of the covenant that God would not judge the earth like that again. It was a public sign for God to see and for us to see that God would not judge the earth in that way again. And like that sign of the noetic covenant, so too circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But unlike the rainbow, which would be a public sign for all to remember God's promise not to flood the earth again. Unlike that sign, the sign of circumcision would be a most intimate reminder for Abraham and his offspring of God's personal promise of grace and provision. It is a sign like the rainbow, but the rainbow is public. Circumcision is close and it is personal and it is private. And it is showing that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is coming very near to his people. 
It is true that the covenant sign of circumcision would mark off national Israel from the rest of the pagan world. It did have that purpose. It was a kind of distinguishing mark between God's people and not God's people. It is true there is a a marking off of national Israel through circumcision. But please listen, this covenant sign would also have a function far deeper than national identity. For Abraham, again, we have to remember the context of where we find ourselves. For Abraham, the sign of circumcision was to be a reminder of what already took place in his heart when he believed God. And God accounted that belief as righteousness to Abraham. Remember with me, this was back in chapter 15, which feels like a long time ago. It is 23 years ago in the, in the narrative, but just two weeks ago for us. But back in chapter 15, remember when God took Abram then outside into the starry nights. And he said, look into the heavens, Abram. See if you can number all of the stars in the skies. And if you should be able to number them, I want you to know that's how many descendants will come through you. And if you remember in chapter 15, verse 6, Moses records that Abram believed God. Abram believed God. And God accounted that belief as righteousness to Abraham. That is to say, when Abraham, through faith, believed in the promises of God, God circumcised the heart of Abraham. In other words, through faith, there was a discarding of the trust of the flesh. And in its place, there was a miraculous desire in Abraham to trust God and walk with him. In short, Abraham was circumcised in his heart well before he was ever circumcised in his flesh. And therefore, the covenant sign of circumcision is there to be a reminder to Abraham and all who would want to come after God that something needs to take place inside before anything will make sense outside. It was a sign of God's covenant. And so... Although circumcision was the marking off of national Israel in the world and would be a part of the Mosaic law for 400 years later, Moses would, God through Moses would demand circumcision of the Jewish nation. Circumcision was always to be a sign, listen, pointing inward to something deeper and pointing forward to something greater. Circumcision, the covenant sign of circumcision that we're reading about in Genesis 17 was always to be a sign of something pointing to something inward, something deeper, and a sign pointing forward to something greater. In fact, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses writes this. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. This is not New Testament. This is Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. It's on the screen. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
that you may live. Circumcision of the flesh is always meant to be a sign pointing to something deeper, something that's gone on in the heart of God's people. Later on in redemptive history, the prophet Jeremiah would warn the children of Israel for resting merely in their physical circumcision. This would be a warning from God's people, from the prophet Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all those who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Circumcision, beloved, was always to be a sign of something deeper. And there were warnings. There are warnings like this all over the Old Testament of resting merely in external conformity to God. The topic of circumcision would become the most debated issue in the first century church. So now we're fast forwarding thousands of years to the birth of the first century church, which was a birth within the Jewish people. Christ himself was a Jew. His first 12 followers were Jews. And so this new covenant is born in a Jewish context. And so understandably, this issue of circumcision became the topic of debate in the early church. The argument from the Judaizers was that in order for Gentiles, again, non-Jews, the argument from the Judaizers was that, that Gentiles, in order to be truly Christian, I mean, you're, you're, you're a JV Christian until you're circumcised. In order to become truly a Christian, you had to first become a ritual Jew. You had to become a Jew, then you can become fully Christian. And the, the way to become a ritual Jew was to become circumcised. And so the Judaizers had an understandable argument. This is, after all, the, the covenant with Abraham, who is the father of the Jewish nation. And so in order for these Gentile Christians, who apparently are becoming Christians, to really be in, they need to first be circumcised. But one Jewish scholar comes along by the name of Paul the Apostle. You may have heard of him. One Jewish scholar by the name of Paul comes along and he would argue, he's a Jewish scholar, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he knows his Bible inside and out, and he would argue that the physical sign of circumcision was merely an outward manifestation of what took place in the heart of God's true people. And therefore, Paul would argue that physical circumcision is not required for true conversion, but instead the circumcision of the heart. Are you guys tracking so far with me? So Paul writes in Romans chapter two, listen to what Paul the apostle writes on this topic of circumcision. Listen, Paul says this, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, verse 29 of Romans two, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart 
by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision was always meant to be a sign pointing to something inward that is deeper in the person that is following God by faith. One more big cross-reference and then we'll move on and we cannot miss this. It'll be up on the screen. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Paul deals directly with Genesis 17. So this is Paul's commentary directly on Genesis 17. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And right there, all God's people say, amen. So on this issue of salvation, this is a dead serious issue. This is how Paul introduces the topic. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What's the purpose, Paul? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And all God's people again said, amen. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So then, back to our text in Genesis 17. Abraham was given the sign of the covenant as a reflection of what took place in his heart before he was ever circumcised so that Abraham might be an example, might be the father of all who would come to God by faith. This is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, a sign of something deeper and a sign of something greater. And that last piece is what I want to end our time with, the sign of something greater. Look at verse 15. You can title this point, an impossible birth or the sign of something greater. Well, this is our third and last movement in the text. Look at verse 15 and following. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Both, by the way, mean princess. Sarai means princess and Sarah means princess, but it is a new name. Verse 16, I will bless her 
And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. There it is again. Kings of people shall come from her. Now look at Abram's or Abraham's response. Verse 17. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, with remarkable patience, who saw this pretty disrespectful laughter, God, with remarkable patience, in verse 19, said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So, despite all of the theophanies, despite all of the promises given directly by God to Abraham, Abraham still could not get over the natural barriers to this promise. He's laughing, I presume, because he's trying to picture Sarah at 90 with a pregnant belly. He just couldn't get over the natural barriers to the promise. It just seemed quite literally laughable. This was an impossible birth. It's impossible. I'm 100, Abraham says. She's 90. We're grandparents. Surely Ishmael will do. He's 13 now, Lord. Let me, let me introduce you to Ishmael again. Maybe the, the heir of my offspring will, will be through surrogacy, through Ishmael. This is an impossible birth. And beloved, please don't miss this. This is an impossible birth. And that is exactly the point. This is exactly the point that God is making to Abraham and Sarah. And this is the point he is making to us this morning. Because who will boast in the birth of Isaac? Who will say, surely I have done this? No, boasting in the flesh will be silenced at the birth of Isaac. Laughing at the promises of God will turn into tears of shock and joy. As God does the impossible. Maybe you're here this morning. And you cannot get over the natural barriers in your life to, be, to receiving the love and affection from God. Maybe you're here this morning and it just feels impossible. You're one of those people that says to me every time I say, I'm a pastor, you go, oh, I don't go into a church because if I do, lightning is going to strike me. 
Maybe you're in here this morning and you are just laughing at the natural barriers to God's affection in your life. I want you to see the God of the impossible. That's the point. He speaks and things exist. Those who are far from God at the voice of God come near to God. He is God almighty. He is El Shaddai. He hushes storms with his mouth. He causes stars to come into the heavens. Surely he can cause salvation in your wayward heart. Don't leave here without encountering El Shaddai. God Almighty. The God of the impossible. Maybe you're here this morning and you're tempted to boast in your birth, in your salvation. Because you were raised in a Christian home and a somewhat Christian culture and this is sort of just the air you breathe and I don't know, I was just good and maybe that's why God saved me. Silenced. There is no boasting. There is only miracle. It's an impossible birth. the New Testament provides another metaphor to describe the circumcision of the heart. You know what that metaphor is? New birth. Being born again. You've heard that phrase. To be a born again Christian. That's a redundancy in phrase. (laughs) There are no Christians who aren't born again. (laughs) That's how you become a Christian. You're born And it was an impossible birth. And El Shaddai was involved in that. Another metaphor for the circumcision of the heart is new birth. In fact, the apostle John writes in 1 John 5.1, he says, everyone who believes, everyone, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If right now you say, to my deathbed, I believe, I'm not perfect, but I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, John says, that means you've been born. You've been born. Paul writes in Galatians 6, 14 and 15, and here it comes really close to this language of circumcision. Listen to this. But far be it from me, Paul says, here's the boasting, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither, verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation a new birth, a new person, someone who has been made alive, they've been born again. That's all that matters. It's not religion or irreligion. It's not the fact that you were born a Jew or born a Gentile. Paul says the only thing that matters is new birth. You're a new creation. Jesus was confounding the scholars in his day with this teaching my favorite encounter of Jesus is with Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter three of John. 
Nicodemus comes to him by night, presumably because he's a little embarrassed at the fundamental question, the elementary question he's about to ask this questionable rabbi, Jesus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night and says, how do you, how do you get in? Like, how, do you, how do you get saved? How do you come into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus doesn't say, okay, get circumcised, then get baptized, then join a church, then say an oath, scouts honor, that you'll do this forever, then go on a missions trip for two years, come back, then write a book and a paper and an essay. He doesn't say any of that. He says, oh, that's, that's, that's very simple. You just need to be born again. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, seriously? It's laughable. That's impossible. It's impossible. Am I to go into my mother's womb again? That's impossible. And, and Jesus says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. But whoever is born of the spirit is spirit. And then Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wishes. God Almighty gets to do this. So how? How does one walk before God blameless? You have to be born again, circumcised in the heart. God does that inward work. God speaks life to you like he spoke the stars in the heavens. God hushes the turmoil in your soul like he's hushed the storm in the seas. God has to do this impossible work. Like the birth of Isaac, it's impossible, but not for El Shaddai. This is the point of all of this. God is doing for Abraham and Sarai what Abraham and Sarai cannot do. What Noah could not do, what Adam and Eve could not do, what you and I still cannot do. This is the greater sign of circumcision, the gift of the Son of Jesus Christ. It is an indication, circumcision is an indication of something deeper, and it's an indication of something greater. Let me end with this. The actual cutting away of the male foreskin was to be a picture for the Jew, was to be a picture of sin being removed and discarded away from the people of God. This was God's people saying, I am going to walk blameless before God. I'm going to be holy. And so the actual cutting away of the foreskin of the flesh and throwing it out was saying, I'm throwing my flesh. I am throwing my sin away. And instead I'm going to walk in the spirit. I'm going to walk in dependence upon God. It was a picture of circumcision of the heart, but it was a most vivid illustration of sin and flesh being cut off and separated from the believer in order to make them holy and acceptable to God. 
We know now, but Abraham couldn't have known fully what God was up to. That this, that this wasn't only a deeper reality, but this was a greater reality yet to come. Little did they know that God, in order to extend true and lasting eternal holiness to his people, he would cut off and discard his own son in order to bring us into the covenant family of God. Jesus Christ would be the peace, cut off flesh, discarded outside of Jerusalem, which is where he was hung on the tree, outside of God's covenant family. Jesus was cut off so that we could be brought in. And that's why we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 in our call to worship. For our sake, he made him to be sin. To be the thing you discard, cast off, pushed out of the camp. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He's discarded and it was, it was not just. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, this is the greatest reality of the sign. This is what it was pointing to, the discarding of the son for the adoption of the elect so that we could come in blameless and spotless, though we, des- we deserve to be discarded. Christ, the son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity, the only righteous one to ever walk the planet is cut off and discarded. And finally, this is the imagery that Paul pulls from in Colossians chapter two. And this is where we end. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in him. Also, verse 11, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. That is the sign of the new covenant. I wish we had more time. We talk more about that. But having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. New birth, that's new birth. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus' body, as another writes, Jesus' body was cut away for our sin. He was cut off from God for our sin. And Jesus is the one who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of this was so that we might be circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. May we, 
marvel at this great hope in him.